Well, we are back in 1 Peter. And last week we started our introduction or beginning of 1 Peter. And what I tried to do last week was to give you an overview of 1 Peter, to give you a feel for the book, for the forest, so now we can get into the trees. And I have... I will confess to you, deceived you a little bit this morning. That outline that I gave you, I realized partway through the week and partway through the stomach flu was far too ambitious to accomplish this morning. So that outline is actually going to carry us for a few weeks, in part because over the next few weeks we have to deal with, and it's a privilege to deal with, the doctrine of election. And so I think Going through that, we're going to take a step back and walk through that bit by bit to see the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each member of the Trinity, and how each member plays a vital role in your salvation and mine. But today, we're going to deal with the opening greeting. Last week, just as a summary for the beginning, when we went through 1 Peter, we said one of the Reformed frameworks with which we can study the Bible and understand the Bible which does honor to God as the author of Scripture, the Spirit is the one who inspired Scripture, and the Son who died to give us His Word, is the notion of a a Reformed hermeneutic. And we said, as we look at every book in the Bible and every passage in the Bible, it's important for us to consider three things. There's probably a lot of other things that we need to consider, but we'll start with three of them. And the first one we said was authorial intent, who wrote this book, and understanding who the author is, was, and will be, all right? The second one was context. What is the biblical context? Where does this piece of scripture or part of the word of God sit in context with the entire word of God? Where does it fit in in the story from Genesis to Revelation? Where does it fit in in the New Testament so that we can understand this particular tree in light of the whole forest? And then the third aspect that we wanted to address with each passage of Scripture was what is the purpose? Why did the Spirit of God leave this word first for the original audience and then for you and I? And as we went through First Peter, we said that the author on a human level was who? So I get to interact in a classroom. Was it Jeremiah? Was it Paul? No, it was the namesake, right? It wasn't Second Peter, it was First Peter who wrote this book. It, it was the Apostle Peter who wrote this book, and now he is an apostle, not a disciple, and we sit from that point of view with someone who comes as a messenger, and we said that an apostle is similar to an ambassador, where the ambassador, his significance, importance, is not based on who he is, but it's based on the one who sent him. And it's based on the message that he carries and the authority that he represents. The same way an ambassador of the United States to some other country represents the same authority, message, and significance. And so really, when we talk about the Apostle Peter being the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's the Apostle Peter, Peter the Apostle of Jesus Christ, Scripture comes and tells us that the real author of this book is Jesus Christ himself. And so as we look at the New Testament, we're looking at the words of Christ. And as we look at Jesus, who is the word of God, we look at from Genesis to Revelation, that these words are his words. And they're his words, first and foremost, for his people. And so 
moving past that from the author and saying, okay, if Jesus is the author and he's working supernaturally through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Peter, who is he addressing and what is the context of this book? And we said last week that the context, which makes it easy when we open up our Bible, is that this is in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and that this is after the cross, not before the cross. So the law is no longer the mediator between God and man, but it's Christ who has come. And we said that the entire Old Covenant and the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ and his death and resurrection and Christ has come, and because Peter is an apostle now, we've said that the Holy Spirit has come. The new covenant has been inaugurated by the blood of Christ, and the Holy Spirit now actively indwells those who are God's children, which is a distinction from the Old Testament. And the church era, the new covenant people of God has begun. Pentecost has come, and the church has begun, and the fulfillment of Christ's promise that the Spirit would come, and that the apostles would act as witnesses where? First in Judea, then in Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And so as we read the opening greeting of the letter for First Peter, as he talks about to the elect, the chosen ones who are in the dispersion in Pontus, in Asia, in Bithynia, in all of these different places which are spread out in what is today modern-day Turkey, but then was known as Asia Minor, which was a variety of Roman provinces, what we are seeing in the context is Christ is already fulfilling his promises of the new covenant. And these people are living the reality that the new covenant and the coming of the Spirit and all of God's promises of his love and his grace for his people in Christ has already begun to happen. They are living it. They are not waiting. Yes, they are waiting for Christ to come. But at the same time, they are actively living the presence of the Spirit. And I would go one step further to say, even as each one of you and I are not waiting for pie in the sky, but we are each, if you are a true child of God and if you are filled with the Spirit, you are living the fulfillment of everything that was written in the Old Testament and all the promises of God. And when you go to Second Peter, when he talks about that we are partaking of the divine nature of God according to the promises of God, he makes that clear and he talks to the people and says that you share the same faith that we do as apostles. So where does this First Peter fit in? We are seeing the active fulfillment of God's promises throughout his scripture of drawing to himself a possession, a special people, a people of, of, of privilege, a people of responsibility for himself, a kingdom of priests, for his name's sake and for his glory. That's actively happening. But the flip side of that, we said in that context, is what? That though they are living out the reality of the presence of the Spirit and the fulfillment of all the promises of God's goodness and glory and love in Christ, they are facing increasing persecution. We said historically, uh, we understand from tradition to our best knowledge that Peter probably was executed under Nero's regime, that Nero passed away uh, in A.D. 68, we believe, and he, the burning of Rome, 64, the persecution of Christians in the arena and the lighting them on fire and all of the other persecutions that intensified in Rome, probably 64, 65, and so as we go through this letter and we see the trials that they are beginning to experience, 
the text would suggest that we're probably 63, 64, where Peter is addressing the fact that these people are being persecuted because of their relationship with Christ. They do not fit in. They are strangers in their local community. That ultimately they are held under high suspicion because they do not participate in pagan idolatry and they do not participate in emperor worship. And the persecution is more intense in the smaller provinces rather than Rome, but it will grow. And so Peter is writing within the context of people who have begun to suffer for their faith, for being identified with Christ, and that suffering is intensifying. They are, some of them are losing their jobs. They are being slandered. They are being excluded by family members. They are finding it difficult to function in the local community. And you know in a small town... If you do the wrong thing in a small town where you're living in a fishbowl, you got big trouble, right? You might as well move out of town. And yet these people are caught in this situation in this place. And so we said as well when we look at the context, when we read 1 Peter and we open it up in the beginning, we can tell from the beginning that Peter is writing a letter because he's writing from Peter to these people. There's an opening greeting. And at the end, there's a conclusion. And when we look at that, we say the literary genre of First Peter is what? It's a letter, right? And that's distinct from what we said is, is narrative, where we are telling a story or documenting a series of events. And we said last week that when we look at the epistles, most of the epistles were really biblical counseling episodes for the early church. That Christ was sending his word to communities of people who were struggling with a particular problem at a particular time in a particular place. And if we're to understand the letter and what God is trying to say here, the author and his intent, we have to understand a little bit of that predicament. That these people were getting discouraged. They were struggling. They were struggling in their homes, their work, their relationships, and in their churches as well. And those who were overseeing them, when we look at the end of 1 Peter, were also struggling. Perhaps they were getting frustrated. Perhaps they were getting discouraged. Perhaps people weren't showing up to church. There would be some suggestion that there was tension and maybe infighting among the, that people in that community. And so the Spirit comes, the Spirit of Christ, the Good Shepherd, and He comes to shepherd His sheep. And the shepherd that He brings is a man himself, Peter, who has stumbled, a man who has succumbed to persecution, a man who has succumbed to fear of man, a man who has failed his Savior, and yet was restored by the cross, was forgiven by the cross, was loved by the cross, and was loved by Christ, and was poured in grace upon grace upon grace, and was a man whose broken life was transformed by the cross, and knew firsthand the forgiveness and grace of God in Christ. And this is the shepherd who Christ calls to minister to this group of hurting people. And as he shepherds them, we see that the purpose of the letter, as we find in the first chapter and also the last chapter, and in every chapter in between, as Peter repeats the phrase, grace, 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 eight times in five chapters, we said last week. And he concludes to them saying in 5.12, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it, we see the purpose of this letter, that this letter is written by the Spirit of God, that this is Christ's letter to his people, that the context is their suffering and their persecution in the early days of the church, and the purpose of his writing to them 
is to encourage them, to strengthen them, to provide them with a sure hope, but beyond that, to enable them to triumph and experience the fullness of God's love. How? By pointing them to the one thing that they need, which is the grace of God in Christ. It's the one thing that each one of us needs in times of difficulties and trials. And I'm going to divert this for a little bit, for a moment, to say, okay, well, where does that bring you and I? Because we're living in the 20th century, 21st century, excuse me, and it's not like we're living in a Muslim country where there's persecution that's happening. How does that affect us? Because we're not being persecuted. And I want to think this week, one of the things that sort of captured the attention of my home, and I'm sure it captured the attention of your home, was the horrific events that happened with Hurricane Sandy. And as we watched and saw terrible, terrible things happen, and we saw suffering and loss, and we saw mothers who lost their children as the waves came in and took them, and later were found children lying dead in a marsh. And you sit there and you look at this natural disaster, and it's horrific, and your heart grieves, and your heart goes out to these people. When you interact with crisis like that, which happens on a day-to-day -day basis, some of the first questions that you and I probably should be confronted with by our coworkers if they're willing to talk to us is, where is there a loving God, and where is the love of God when such horrific things happen? How do we respond to that? How do we shepherd those people? What do you say to that mother if she was your coworker? Crisis, trials, persecution, painful moments, brutal moments of living in a fallen world where horrific things do happen force us to ask the question, what is our faith all about? What is it that we believe in? What are we hoping? Is it true and is it real? And as hard as those questions are, and I'm sure there are many in New York and around the world and in America whose faith is being questioned at this very moment, who are struggling with those very issues. And we need to have great care and compassion and sympathy for those folks. We have to ask ourselves, how much more difficult is it when there is suffering, pain, and affliction when it would appear on the surface that you've done everything right and you've done exactly what God has called you or asked you to do? and you were suffering or facing horrific challenges and difficulties. Then the questions come in in the biblical counseling office. Lord, I was faithful. I raised my kids in the Lord. I went to church. I sent my kids to Christian school. And my husband is caught having an affair with another woman. I did everything right. God, how dare you do this to me? Is, really, is God really there? Is he a loving God? Is our faith real at that time and that moment? And we see during times of crisis, sometimes for those of faith who have been faithful and done everything they believe the Lord has asked of them, those times of crisis and suffering and difficulty can maybe be even more challenging and more painful and more difficult and maybe even more of a stumbling block than for those who never knew the Lord to begin with. 
I have a sister-in-law who's not saved. She's a very, very sweet gal, and she studied comparative religions, and she told me, I studied suffering from the perspective of Buddhism and Christianity. And so we studied the Buddhist writings on suffering, and we studied the book of Job on suffering. And she said to me, to be honest with you, I found the Christian view of suffering in the book of Job much more difficult. And I asked her why. And she said, because within the Buddhist framework, there's really a randomness and a non-specificity to suffering. Suffering is an entity that's part of our world, and it's there, and it happens, and who it chooses, and it's just a way of life. But when we went through the book of Job, suffering and difficulty and affliction seem so personal, seem so directly connected between a relationship between God and man. And to be honest with you, Mark, she said to me, I find that harder to take. And so we have to go and look at this and say to ourselves as we look at the book of 1 Peter and say that it is most relevant for those without God and for those with God because Peter's message and the message of this book and the big picture is with those people in Staten Island and the people in New York and the people who are suffering great loss, what they need the most is the true grace of God and Christ. Nothing else is going to heal that pain. Nothing else is going to cover over that sorrow. And nothing else is going to give them an understanding that's going to give them hope. Yes, they need blankets. Yes, they need money. Yes, they need apartments and electricity and food. And we know that Jesus ministers to the whole man. Right? We saw that as he ministered to Peter and baked him breakfast after he, before he restored him. But we understand that what these folks need the most is the true grace of God and Christ and everything else is a counterfeit and falls short because no blanket is going to bring back those two children to that mother who lost those children. And even more so for friends and brothers and sisters who are suffering or facing challenges or facing difficulties, even more so the one thing that's needed that Christ has given and that Christ came and he died for to provide for our every need is what? The true grace of God in Christ. And so what Peter does, and as we're going to study today in the opening greeting, is he says, okay, let me teach you about the true grace of God in Christ and then let me go on and show you how you're to live this and how it's going to provide for every aspect of your life. And where he starts is he starts in the greeting by pointing them out to their true identity in grace. Their true identity in grace. And what he's going to show and point out through the rest of the book and what I've alluded to already is that what we do and how we behave is related to our understanding of who and what we are. And that Standing firm in grace begins with understanding who we truly are in Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter, and we'll begin reading that chapter. And in the first chapter, what Peter rolls out for us is our true identity in Christ. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the true grace of God in Christ. As I told you last week, my tendency in the past was always to blow off the introductions and the greetings and to get to the, the real stuff. And yet, when you look at the introductions and greetings, I'm hoping with every epistle that you now read, you'll look at them very carefully and maybe use your MacArthur study notes or whatever you have available. Because what happens in those greetings is that the Holy Spirit provides you with the blueprint for the rest of the book the DNA, just about everything that we're going to find in the rest of the book is found, the foundation stones, in these first two verses. And what Peter is addressing to them as he's saying, stand firm in the true grace of God, is he's saying, okay, let's look at where's the starting point of the true grace of God in Christ. And that starting point is your identity. We're not used to thinking of that an awful lot. How do we think of ourselves? tall, short, doctors, physicians, lawyers. Our issue of identity is something that we're not terribly challenged, and yet it really informs everything that we do. And I would come to you and say that never in America's history has the identity of Christians been more challenged than it is now. There is an identity crisis of what it truly means to be Christian. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, in a conservative evangelical Christian family. I had the privilege of growing up in conservative evangelical Christian churches. And I had the privilege of having a father who was both a deacon and an elder in a conservative Christian evangelical church. And yet the thing that was the biggest stumbling block for me growing up was that I didn't see a lot of difference between the people I went to church with and the people who led my church and those I interacted with school in every other place. When things got difficult and ugly, the leaders fought like cat and dog. And to be honest with you, it was far more ugly than the fighting that took place when I sat in a company where $30 million was running through its hands on an annual basis. And the teen pregnancies were similar to the teen pregnancies in my local high school and the substance abuse and the alcohol abuse and the local youth group. And these were the conservative evangelical Christians. And I really struggled with that growing up because I said, okay, Lord, if you're really real, what's this all about? Because this is just like a bad rotary club. 
It's like everybody's getting together to look good at the front seats and then, you know, all hell breaks loose when nobody's looking. And if this is what it's all about, please count me out. And the truth is, is as I've grown up and as we look in the world today, we're seeing the exact same thing because if we look at the divorce statistics, what do we all know, right? There's not that much of a difference between the divorce statistics for evangelical Christians as it is for the secular world. Now, that's not the be-all and the end-all, and there may be very many legitimate reasons, but we're coming out and saying, how different are we and how different is our identity from the rest of the world? And maybe that's one of the reasons why there's not a whole lot of persecution for Christians. And as we see Billy Graham removing, as Eugene posted, and my mother told me in ABC News, removes Mormons from the cult list on his website. All right. We've got to ask ourselves, okay, are we basically just a group of people who get together and have good family values and have great communion meals and get to hang out at one another's places and, and basically have great Sunday school and education for our children? Is, is that what it's all about? And I would agree with Paul, if this is what it's all about, then we are the most sad and pathetic of all people, are we not? There's something more than that. And Peter addresses that right from the start, because what's happening with the community of people he's dealing with is they're struggling with the same issues, because there's huge amount of pressure for them to conform, unlike you and I. That if they would just go out to the temple and worship with the rest of their guild members and offer sacrifices to the God who oversees their guild or their merchant work. They're going to get that much better business. And because they've abstained from certain events or affairs, their salaries have gone down, and they're wondering whether they can afford to provide for their family. And the question is, if I just become a little bit like them, my life for me, my wife, and my family is going to be so much easier. This is the pressure that's there. And so Peter, right out from the gate, comes and says, look, it's really critical that you understand who you are in Christ. And when we go to 1 Peter 1 and 2, we see that how Peter addresses them, he does not address them like so often we address one another. He does not address them in terms of their race, their gender, their jobs, their careers, their first names or their last names or their ethnicities or their families, all the different ways that we interact with one another, even when we try to get to know one another. You know, as, as Chris came in this morning as a visitor and I asked him, what church do you go to, where do you live, all of those different things. And yet we see what Peter does right from the start is he identifies them in light of their relationship to the grace of God and Christ. He identifies them in light of their relationship to the grace of God in Christ. And that, from Christ's own words, is what determines who these people are, and it determines their fate and their destiny. It explains their past and their present, and it determines how they are to interact and how they are to find a way forward in the midst of crisis based on who they are. And what Peter does is he uses three words to describe them. 
And those three words are actually words that find their context and meaning predominantly in the Old Testament scripture. And what Peter's doing, and he's shepherding them, and maybe we should take a, a leaf from Peter's book, is that he's calling on these people to see themselves not as the world sees them, not even perhaps as they even see themselves, but to see them in light of how God sees them and to see themselves through the lens of Scripture. And that's a challenge for each one of us. How often do we consider and look at ourselves as Mark Chin, the five-foot-two little Asian guy, versus Mark Chin, a sinner saved by grace, the grace that Christ came and died on the cross for? And those three words that he uses are elect, aliens, of the diaspora. And we're going to go through those this morning. And we're going to start with the word aliens because that's sort of the anchor word. Now, when I think and hear the word aliens, I'm thinking because of my time and my era, Ridley Scott, horrific monsters coming in from outer space that are here to destroy us and somehow we have to destroy them before they destroy us. And when we think of that, of course, it sounds like extreme science fiction, but it brings a little element of the notion of aliens because the term alien is actually a regular word that's used for people who lack permanent residence who are temporarily present in a country. So in America, we have legal aliens, right? And we have illegal aliens. And the notion of the idea of an alien is that you lack citizenship. And because you lack citizenship, you lack the rights of that country. And the expectation is that you will only be here for a very short period of time. And after your business is done, you're gone and you're booted out. And we of all people as a group of immigrants should understand that heritage and that notion of what it is to be an alien. Because when we look at those monster movies, those monster movies are an extrapolation of the notion of people's anxieties and fears over aliens. Because when we look at those monster movies, a lot of the same things and a lot of the same attitudes that are, are, are stirred up for those movies were once done towards Asians. Prior to the Immigration Act in the late 60s and the 70s, the ability for people of color to immigrate to this country was limited. And part of the propaganda that was promoted was the idea of the yellow peril. Does anybody remember that? I have... Uh, a painting that my brother gave my mother of cowboys shooting at a Chinese laundryman, okay? And the idea was that if they let too many of us come in, we would breed like rabbits and that we would be all over the place and all the young ladies in America would be smoking opium and there would go the nation. And so we have to keep that under control. But that gives you an idea to a certain extent of this idea of aliens is aliens are people who are outsiders, they are strangers, and they are here on a temporary basis, and they are different, and they are foreign. And because of that, they are targets for all manner of abuse, because within society, they are in the lowest portion of the totem pole. They have the least protection, they have the least credibility, and they have the least standard or place. My grandfather used to run a laundry, classic Chinese laundry. It's what we do, right? But that was a, a, a bygone era. But at that time, if there would be disputes, they would not dispute it. And my father would work in the laundry. 
Why would they not? They would be terrified to go to the police. Why? Because what policeman in Canada in the 1960s and 70s was going to listen to a Chinese person with an accent? You're better off to just suck it up and handle your business and not get involved before the police got involved in your affairs and you were going to be in big problem or have troubles. And that's the notion to a certain extent of some of what these people were experiencing. But to get the full flavor as Peter addresses them as aliens, to understand what he's really saying, we have to realize that when Peter uses the word aliens, he's making reference to a long-standing concept that exists from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And we have to see that picture, that it's not just a political status or identity. We've got to go back and say, okay, the idea of the alien or the exile, when we go to the Old Testament, the language, the equivalent, is sojourner, foreigner, and stranger. And we look at the history of God's redemptive history, we see Abraham. Abraham, the man who is the father of all the children of faith, who Paul refers to as the father of all the children of God, the one who received the promises of God, the one who came from a family of idolaters in Ur of the Chaldees. Before there was a law, before there was an old covenant, God shows up and comes to Abraham and calls Abraham and speaks to him and calls him to leave the community of idolaters and asks him to follow God and to leave his home country and all the security that's there and asks him to walk by faith to go to a country which he has neither seen nor heard or does not know. And God gives to Abraham a covenant, a covenant of grace and a covenant of love that he will give to Abraham a land and a seed and a blessing. And through Abraham's seed and nation, all the children of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham goes from being in a stable community and he becomes a wanderer and he goes through countries where he does not have citizenship. And he becomes the target of the other communities because he worships a different God and he adheres to different customs. And in Genesis 24, I think, 24-3, he comes and he says to the Hittites, he says, I am a sojourner and a stranger in your land. And the context of that is he's looking for a burial place for his wife. And he does not have the situation or the circumstance where he can bury his own wife in that place. He has to go to the locals and he has to negotiate and he has to pay in order to find something for his wife in contrast to those who would be landed aristocracy, who would have all of those things at their disposal. Abraham is identified in the word of God as an alien, a sojourner a foreigner. And then we move forward. I'm going to take you through a Sunday school lesson here. But we move forward to Abraham and Lot. And Abraham and Lot have a conflict over their wells because their flocks have grown so great. And there's not enough room for both Abraham and Lot. And Lot is Abraham's nephew. And Lot has benefited and prospered entirely because of Abraham's relationship with God. And yet, what does Abraham do? Abraham, a child of God's grace, he says to Lot, you choose which place you want to go. 
and I'll go in the other direction because there's not enough room. And what does Lot do? Rather than deferring to Abraham and giving Abraham the best, which he as the elder deserves, Lot takes the best for himself and he looks down on the plain and he sees Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the area of prosperity, the area of wealth, the area of commerce. And Lot says, I'll take that. And Abraham's okay with it, the short end of the stick. Abraham the foreigner, Abraham the alien, Abraham the sojourner. Why? He says, because the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is my inheritance. That my citizenship and my rights are somewhere else than my material possessions. Lot, you go ahead. And Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he prospers in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he purchases a home, and he marries his daughters out, and he becomes like them. So that there's very little distinction between Lot initially and the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah a place whose sins are such an abomination to the Lord that the Lord must destroy. And we know what the outcome of that story is. Lot the city dweller, Abraham the sojourner, and the alien. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Because we go to Joseph, right? A slave and a prisoner in a foreign land, a foreigner in the land of Egypt, the lowest of the lows, right? And then we move on to Moses, a foster child in the Egyptian court with all the issues and the struggles of foster children. He knows he's not there. He has anger issues. He has rage issues. He has a hard time reconciling with the people who are there, even though he has wealth, even though he has privilege, even though he has all those opportunities. And ultimately what happens, we're told that Moses gives all that up, answers the call, leaves, and goes away and becomes a wanderer, a shepherd, a sojourner. What next? The children of Israel, the people of God. Wanderers in the desert. And we read in Leviticus where God says to them, you are sojourners and you are strangers. So we see that they too are aliens and foreigners, the lowest of the low, by God's choosing and by God's appointing. What's God doing here? It's happening all the way through. All the way through. And then God tells them that they are to take care of soldiers and strangers and foreigners in the midst. Why? First of all, because they're vulnerable. First of all, because they're not protected. They are the oppressed and they are the weak. But God goes and says, because you were sojourners, and you were foreigners, and you were immigrants, and you were aliens, and you know what that's like because you were oppressed in Egypt, and therefore you were to care and look out for these folks and these people, because why? You're children of grace, and I expect you to exhibit grace. And the same goes on all the way down the line. We see Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is the alien and the foreigner, and she comes into the fields, and what does Boaz do? He tells his workers in those fields to leave behind portions of wheat and grain so that as she comes into the field, she can collect afterwards and have something to eat. 
Why was that there? What does that demonstrate? Boaz is demonstrating that he is a man of God after God's own heart, who has a heart for the sojourner, the foreigner, and the oppressed, those who do not have land, those who do not have means, those who are the most vulnerable and the most oppressed. And ultimately, Boaz marries Ruth, and Ruth becomes what? From her line. Eventually, Jesse comes and David comes, right? Of the line of the Messiah, the chosen people, an alien, an alien of grace. And so we see that David in the Psalms comes and says, he, the king at the peak, I am a stranger and a sojourner like my father's. And then we see the prophets, and we see Elijah, and then we come to Jesus and John tells us of Jesus in John 1.10 that Jesus, though he was in the world, the world did not know him and he was not welcomed by the world. That Jesus during his time was not accepted in his own town and that he was here with us for a short period of time and he was treated like a stranger and like a foreigner and like an outsider. And then as Jesus prays on behalf of his disciples, in John 17, what's his prayer for his disciples? That they become monks like the Catholic Church and they become separate and they go up to some hill and they become separate and they spend the rest of their lives praying for people and doing good deeds? No, he says, Lord, I've given them your word and the world is going to hate them because they have your word. But I've sent them into the world even though they're not of the world. And Jesus captures perfectly the notion of what a sojourner and what a foreigner and what an alien of grace truly is, that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And Peter had to learn that lesson, and he learned it the hard way as he tried to conform and he tried to be like other people and he was criticized for his Galilean accent and was unable to fade in on the night that Christ was crucified. But on the other side of the cross, Peter here, he now gets it. That the chosen of God, those who have been set apart by the grace of God for the purposes of God, because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a world that hates God, that hates the word of God, that rebels against God and that has agendas and motives and desires that run contrary in its entirety to everything that God stands for. Those who are gods are going to be a different people. And they're going to be hated by the world and they're going to be persecuted by the world. And they're going to be held under suspicion and they're going to be held under attack. And Paul says that to Timothy. He says, those who are truly going to pursue the righteousness of the Lord, all will be persecuted, all without exception. That to be an alien within the biblical context is to be a servant of Christ, a child of grace, someone who has been set apart to live by a different standard. Someone who is born with a different set of DNA. Someone who looks different. Someone who behaves different. Someone who talks differently. And that is entirely informed by the grace of God that has given birth 
each step of the way. And as a result, because you are a child of grace, your time on this earth is temporary, your citizenship is elsewhere, and your identity is completely different. And you will always be, if you are true to who you are, an alien in this world. Peter then adds to that description that you are an alien, aliens of the diaspora. The notion of diaspora was a later term that came in Hellenistic Judaism, but it was a reference to the Jews who had been exiled because of the judgment of God outside of the Holy Land that they were no longer able to live in Palestine. And as a result, they were spread out throughout all the other countries of the world, primarily Babylon, but also all the, Jew excuse me, all the Greek empire. And they were unable to return home. And they had the stigma of being under judgment, and yet they were still God's people, and yet they were still entitled to the promises of God. And when we go through the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the idea of the exiles or the diaspora, those who are spread out in Gentile territories, was the notion of God's chosen people who are living in foreign places among people who were not God's people. They were God's chosen people living among the godless people. They were living during times of God's judgment, testing, and refinement. They were living in times of God's testing, judgment, and refinement. But their identity was formed by their origin, that they had come from God's promised land and they were children of the covenant. And their identity was based on their destiny because all the promises of the prophets was what? That God, though he is righteous and he would judge, his steadfast love endures forever. And that one day he would come and fulfill all the promises of all the covenants and he would gather together all his people and bring them back to himself and bring them back to the Holy Land and bring them back to the fullness of the glory of God. And so we see, as Peter refers to them as aliens of the diaspora, he's making reference that now on the other side of the cross, these people stand as children of grace, called to behold the glory of God's grace, but living in difficult times of judgment and testing and refining of their faith. But their identity is not based on their circumstances. So often in America, our identities have become based on our circumstances. If we are doing well, we are successes. If we are doing poorly or bad things happen, we are refugees or victims of abuse. And we wear those labels one way or the other. And those become the determination of who we are. But Peter comes and says, you know what? It's critical that you understand that your identity is based in the love of God and Christ. Because to the title, Aliens of the Diaspora, he adds the most important determinative phrase, elect or chosen. You are chosen exiles or aliens of the diaspora. You are elect aliens or sojourners of the diaspora. And the term elect or chosen throughout the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament all the way through, referred 
to the people of God's special status in the eyes of the Lord, that they had been set apart or chosen by the love of God for the purposes of God, and that God had provided of himself the sacrifice and the shedding of blood that was needed for the forgiveness of sins so that they could fulfill their destiny. The idea of elect or chosen is the same notion of a marriage within a covenant. It's the idea of a husband who would propose to a wife and that the wife he proposes to is not some random accident but it's a choice and it's a conscious decision that this will be a person of value and importance and of top priority for a specific purpose and a specific destiny. And so when Peter says that you are the elect or the chosen of God, he's saying the fact that you are aliens, the fact that you are being tested, the fact that you are suffering, the fact that you are being challenged in countless different ways, is not an accident. It is entirely and completely and wholeheartedly an act of God's grace that has put you here. How often do we second-guess our decisions during times of difficulty? How often, when things don't turn out the way we think they should, do we go back and say, I could have, would have, should have? Julie will tell you I'm the king of that. Okay? How often do we rethink these things? How often do we blame others when things don't go well or go the way we hoped or expected? When our kids get hurt, you know, honey, did you put the right shoes on? You know, had you just done A, B, C, D, and D, E differently? How often is that extended in our workplace, in our relationships with one another? And yet when we do that, all we're really doing is we're functioning like legalists with one another, are we not? We're holding one another to a standard that you and I can't live up to. And Peter's coming and saying, look, everything that's happened is happening because you have a sovereign God who loves you. And if you understand the cross and Christ, that your life is married with him, and that for Christ, who God loved the most, the destiny involved suffering and a cross because we live in a sinful world and because sin demands a payment, why do we think it's going to be any different for us if we're children of the cross too and we're children of Christ and if we're children of grace, that everything that we have, our entire identity, is the unmerited favor of God, why do we think it's going to be different for children of grace? Grace isn't just about a trip to Hawaii. We said that last week. Grace is about experiencing the glory of God's love and the glory of God's grace. And the glory of God's love and the glory of God's grace was most clearly expressed where? on the cross, was it not? When he died for your sins and mine. And so we see that the notion of being chosen, of being in a covenant relationship with Christ, of being married to Christ, is entirely an act of grace. There's nothing that we did. We didn't propose to God. We like to think that way in America. We like to think we raised our hands. 
Like Huey, I got saved several times. I said the sinner's prayer, I don't know how many different times. One time my brother put my, his hand on my shoulder during an altar call and said, you were there last night. You know, that's American Christianity. It's all about our choice, the things that we do, the things that we say. But that makes God so small, the creator of the universe. And we step back and look in the wide-angle lens and we see the grace of God if we're willing to open up our eyes and say, you know what? The fact that Mark Chin is five foot two and had stomach flu this week was entirely under God's sovereignty by God's choosing and God's destiny. And for some reason, I don't understand. This is the path that he wanted me. I would never be an NBA player. I would never get LeBron's place as the MVP. All of those different things entirely the sovereignty of God that ultimately leads me to that perfect relationship with Christ. How freeing is that and how encouraging is that? I no longer have to hold other people to accounts for what went wrong in my life. I no longer have to blame other people, but I can give grace. I can endure the sins that happen if and when my family members fall short. Why? At the end of the day, they're sinners who need grace. That all of these things in Christ find their place. Why? Because when we're married to Christ, it comes with a privilege and a responsibility. The privilege is that we're one with him and that we have the opportunity to participate in the entire glory of God's grace, something that we've been going through with the men on Saturday mornings as we look in Ephesians that you have the opportunity to behold the glory of Christ. And perhaps we don't see the glory of Christ as great as we do during, unless we're in times of difficulty and duress and we see how fallen and difficult and painful this world is. But here's the flip side. It comes with the responsibility. And Peter's communicating that to them. Elect aliens of the diaspora. You are privileged because you are God's chosen people and you are God's bride. But you also have a responsibility. And that responsibility is that in the face of trials and tribulations and difficulties, that you act like children of grace and not like the children of the world. And that your heart's desire is not everything that's here, your material possessions and in your investment in the here and now, but that your focus is on the hope that Christ is going to bring when we see our groom face to face and that our heart and love is invested there rather than all the things that consume us in the here and now and that we live by true grace and not counterfeit grace. And that is the way we interact with one another as elders, as husbands and wives, as parents, as co-members, as co-workers, and yes, even as we consider those who have suffered through horrific catastrophes like Hurricane Sandy, where we say, you know what? We're strangers and foreigners in this land. We're aliens and we're different. We're weak and vulnerable people who are entirely dependent on the Lord as our inheritance. And we are entirely dependent, not on the size of our bank accounts, not on our titles, not on our names, not on our prestige, but we are dependent entirely on our relationship with Christ and the grace he gives. And as such, we of all people 
should have great sympathy and compassion for those who are in a vulnerable and difficult position. And we should be extending grace. But the greatest grace that we should be extending to those people is what? Not counterfeit grace, but the true grace of God in Christ. The message of 1 Peter and his opening greeting is that those who are truly Christ's children will indeed suffer and they will indeed be outsiders, and they will indeed be foreigners and aliens, and that we will never be at home in this world. Why is that? Because our DNA is different, because we have been born of grace, and because we've been born of grace, we have a great privilege of the full love of God and Christ, but we also have a great responsibility. What is that? That we would indeed be children of grace, and grace is what we share with one another and what we share with a desperate and lost and dying world that so desperately needs one thing, the true grace of God in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became a stranger and a foreigner in this country and in this world on our behalf. And you gave up all the privileges and the gifts and the things that you had and that you owned. And you became vulnerable and you became rejected and reviled, and you demonstrated the grace of God as you bore our sins. Lord, would we understand who we truly are? Would we stop trying to be like the world? Would we stop aspiring after the world's things? Would we stop aspiring for the world's securities? And would we enjoy the beauty of the grace that you have given us in you? And would the enjoyment of that grace in our own lives, Lord, be the wealth that we share in our homes, our families, our church, our elder board? And would that be, Lord, the wealth that we share with a dying and hurting world who needs to know you as Savior and Lord? In your name we pray, amen.